All right, well, we'll be in Luke chapter 13 this morning, verses 10 through 21. I heard a story a while back about a B-17 bomber raid over Germany during World War II, and as the Americans were dropping bombs over Germany, Nazi anti-aircraft shells were coming up from the ground, and this, this particular bomber was just getting pummeled with anti-aircraft bullets or missiles or shells. Some One of you military guys tell me what that right word is. Even even one of the crewmen saw that one of these shells went into the gas tank of the of the plane there. And uh, amazingly, the the plane doesn't explode and they make it back there to base. And when they when they inspect the plane, they found actually 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank alone. And so these shells were taken and they, they were placed, you know, in, in like those who would examine those things and defuse the bombs. And, and they found that none of the shells actually had the charge that would detonate them. In fact, only one of them had something inside of it. It was a letter written in check that said, this is all we can do for now. You see, see, the checks were overrun by Germany and many of them were forced to work in munitions plants. And so one of the few things they could do was just not put the charge inside the shell so it wouldn't blow up a plane. You know, this this wasn't blatant. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't in your face. It was actually very quiet and under the radar. But their work meant the salvation of a lot of American pilots and crewmen that day. In fact, the whole squadron of planes was rescued, delivered that day. You know, many in Jesus' day were expecting the Messiah to come with a flash and for it to be blatant and in your face in in some sort of apocalyptic fashion. And they would be surprised that the Messiah would come, in, in fact, quietly in the night. And he would come humbly to this earth. In fact, many in Jesus' day would use that to seek to discredit him. This isn't the apocalyptic universal reign that we were promised in the Messiah, so Jesus must not be the Messiah. But for others, they saw the glory of Christ on display in the way that he exercised and demonstrated his authority to deliver people from the bondage of sin. They saw that the work of Christ was actually pointing forward to this universal reign of Christ where he will reign in righteousness over all the earth. They saw that the quiet beginnings of the kingdom of God in Christ would eventually result in this reign that is promised throughout the scriptures. So Lord willing, our text this morning can can humble us as we see that God works for His own glory, and He often works in ways that go against our own assumptions and against the ways that we would have planned and orchestrated history if it were actually up to us. So specifically this morning, we're looking in Luke 13 at the surprising nature of the kingdom of God. The surprising nature of the kingdom of God. There's just two points this morning. The first one is this, the power of the kingdom is on display in the ministry of Jesus. As we so often see in Luke, he usually takes a verse or two to sort of set the scene, and that's what you find in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on 
the Sabbath. This is a familiar scene in the Gospel of Luke. We, we, we find Jesus in other places teaching in the synagogue, even teaching on the Sabbath. The, the, the synagogue, remember, is different from the temple. It wasn't a place of sacrifice. It was more a place of instruction where you could gather locally and hear someone stand up and read the Scriptures and explain the Scriptures. The synagogue was about learning the Word of God, and that's what Jesus is doing this Sabbath day. He stood up in the synagogue, and He is teaching so you have the crowd in the synagogue, you have Jesus, you have this, this ruler of the synagogue, which will become an important person in our story. And, and then Luke says, and behold, look, look, look at this. There, there is a woman who is in a really, really desperate spot in her life. You know, whether, whether she's already in the crowd and Luke just wants us to know that, or whether he's using that word, word behold, to draw our attention. Maybe she just walked in the back door. Behold, look. I, the, the images of a woman that's bent in half. She's doubled over. And she's slowly and painfully making her way throughout the synagogue. So those who know this lady likely don't remember a time when she wasn't bent over. She's been, she's been suffering from this ailment for 18 years. So imagine, for, for 18 years, she suffered the physical pain, and not only that, but the social cost of this particular disease. So children are staring People are perhaps laughing. Society has likely ostracized her based on what we saw Jesus confronting in our last text. Just because someone suffers doesn't mean they're guilty of sin. He was confronting that attitude because it was prevalent in Israel. What has this lady done? That she's bent over her. Uh, for, for the last 18 years, she must have done something extremely sinful. So she's likely ostracized in society. So that's, that's the way she's been treated. But Jesus is radically different. He could have ignored this woman. Nobody would have batted an eye. She's probably come to the synagogue every Saturday for, for, for years and years and years. Nobody would have batted an eye if Jesus just finished his message and walked out and she hobbled out after him. Nobody would have cared. Nobody would have thought less of Jesus if that would have been what was happening. But verse 12 there alerts us to the, to the compassion of Jesus. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. So we don't know from the text that, that this lady was specifically seeking Jesus. And instead we see in Jesus, him taking the initiative. He sees her. He calls her. And we've seen this over and over in Luke, that this is, this is the type of Savior that, that Jesus is. He's a compassionate and a kind Savior. And he, he, he's, he's a type of Savior that stands opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the lowly, to the humble. And He sees this woman who has been despised, and He calls her over because He sees her, and, and He exercises His power on her behalf to deliver her from that which has held her in bondage. Over and over we see this in Jesus, and He does it here for this ailing woman. Through His sovereign and creative Word, He delivers this woman from something she's been suffering 
for 18 years. He reaches out, he, he speaks, he reaches out, he touches her. And remember, we've, we said Luke loves this word immediately. Immediately, she is healed. She goes from a right angle to standing straight up, something she hasn't done in the last 18 years. Immediately. One author says it this way, Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can create and transform and renew and break down and build and quicken with irresistible power. The one who spoke at creation can speak and lay his hand on this woman and she can be immediately healed. And so Jesus demonstrates, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, his authority, his power to reverse this condition. You know, we sort of skipped over verse 11 there, but, but it says in verse 11 that this was not just a physical ailment. Luke slipped in a little detail that this woman was afflicted by a wicked angel or, or an evil spirit or your translation, they say a demon. Paul speaks of them being a messenger of Satan. We've seen as Jesus has delivered people over and over and over again that these wicked angels hate God and they rage against God. And one of the ways they rage against God is seeking to afflict those who image God. They hate Him. And in raging against Him, they try to destroy those who are made in His image. But Jesus has come to free the bound. And this lady has certainly been bound. And He's come to overthrow the domineering control of Satan in this world. And so he does it for this lady. He speaks and he lays his hand on her and immediately she's healed, not only physically, but of the affliction of this wicked angel. We can imagine in our own minds this woman's response. We can imagine the surprise. We can imagine the relief, the joy. And what does she do? She glorifies God. We've seen this from others who have been healed. We've seen it from crowds that have witnessed these healings. It's, it's to praise God. What a sight to behold. Can you imagine anyone, anyone witnessing this, seeing this, and not just absolutely rejoicing? Well, there are some in the synagogue that day who see this, and they are doing the opposite of rejoicing. You know, the last time Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, we know there was, a, there was a quick and a fierce reaction from the scribes and the Pharisees. They were absolutely furious. And so if you're reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time, and you, you sort of saw their reaction initially, and now you've heard Jesus' warnings, you, you better respond while there's time, you better repent, and you better receive the Messiah, you might be wondering, have the religious leaders heard the warning? Have they heeded Luke chapter 12? Have they repented of their sins? Will they bear the fruit of repentance and rejoice in the work of their Messiah who has come to deliver them? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. As you read Luke 13, the first words, at least in, in the ESV, I'm assuming every other English translation, the first words of verse 14 shock us. But, but... There should not be a but in this story. There, there should not be Jesus spoke and touched this lady and immediately she was healed and she praises and glorifies God. And then you read verse 14. But somebody is not happy. 
this leader in the local synagogue is, is angry because Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath. See, Luke included that little detail in verse 10 for, for a reason to sort of let us know this is going to be important as the story develops. This is the Sabbath day, and Jesus has healed somebody on the Sabbath. Now, many of you know that in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was a day of mandatory rest for Israel. It was even a day, as we'll see in, 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 later on, that this was a day to reflect on the deliverance that God had accomplished on behalf of Israel. And it's a day to trust God, that, that, that we can actually take a day off and He will work His good will. But the religious leaders had gotten so a hold of the Sabbath and they so added regulations on top of God's law to sort of make sure that no one would even get close to transgressing this law. We better add extra biblical regulations so that under this legalistic, self-righteous, prideful, extra-biblical system that they had created, the Sabbath day had become the most burdensome day of the week. The day that was supposed to be rest and reflection, what did they do? They laid up heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people. You know, it's sort of like coming home from vacation, but you push yourself so hard on vacation that now you need to go back to work to actually catch up on some rest. Sunday must have been a breath of fresh air for the Israelites who lived underneath the Pharisaical rule. I'm glad that's over because that was a burden to me. I couldn't hardly make it. I need to get, go, get back to work so that I can catch up and feel free. What God had meant for good had been twisted and manipulated into something harmful because the, the, the people making the laws, one of the reasons, they, they lacked compassion for the people. They lacked compassion for the people. You see it here in this man's response. He would rather hold to these extra biblical standards than be excited for this lady who has now been delivered. He says she should have come first thing Sunday morning if she wanted to be healed. You don't come on a Sabbath day if you want to be healed. He's completely missed the point that Jesus has come and he's reversing the effects of the evil one. He's restoring this woman that's been affected by the fall and afflicted by wicked angels. And so Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of these extra-biblical standards. You know, I've told, I've told you this before, but I used to think that legalism was just sort of like, well, you know, they're just a little hardcore. Maybe they should just chill out a little bit, but good for them for being like extra hardcore. But then you read Jesus and you, and you read Paul in Colossians 2, and they confront this legalistic self-righteousness head on. And you see that in Jesus' response, specifically in verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? So Jesus, he, he says, hypocrites, there's multiple, not just the ruler who objected, and this, this guy wasn't actually speaking directly to Jesus, he's sort of addressing a, a broader audience, but Jesus turns to him, 
and turns to those who were sort of nodding along as he was trying to condemn Jesus in front of everybody. That's right, Mr. Ruler of the synagogue. She should have come on Sunday to be healed. She should not have come on the Sabbath day to be healed. And Jesus looks and he says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. He is self-righteously condemning the work of God, the undeniable work of of God. And so, so this ruler and anyone who was like, that's exactly right, they're included in this charge of hypocrisy. And, and notice Luke says, the Lord answered, reminding us that Jesus is the, the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is Lord over the Sabbath, that he determines how the law is administered and to be interpreted. Specifically, Jesus will know and can determine whether acts of mercy are appropriate to be, to be practiced on the Sabbath. Clearly they're not, because Jesus didn't come to, to break the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus, in absolute genius fashion, not, because, not just because Jesus is super smart, He, he is God in the flesh, So not surprising to us, he just comes up with a genius way to undermine their whole argument and to demonstrate that they are being hypocritical here. He says, all of you on the Sabbath, you you untie your ox or or you take your donkey and you take it down to get a drink of water. So notice Jesus' line of argument here. He's not saying you shouldn't do this for your ox or for your donkey. He says, you do this, and rightfully so. The righteous person has regard for the life of his beast. You ought to take him down. You ought to get him some water if he needs it. But if you care for your livestock on the Sabbath, if you're willing to untie that animal and walk it down and get it some water, if you care for your livestock on the Sabbath, how much more should I care for this woman? Hypocrites. You know, Jesus could have said something like this. He could have said, you know, it's really not work for me to do this. You realize that, right? It's not work for me to do this. It's it's nothing I just speak and it happens. Are you allowed to speak on the Sabbath? Okay, well, I just spoke on the Sabbath. It wasn't really work. But he doesn't go there. Instead, he argues for the rightness of his work based on the importance of an image bearer that far surpasses the importance of their little donkeys that they take down to get water. And he does this by pointing out that this this woman is a daughter of Abraham. Again, this woman that's been afflicted, This woman that's likely been ostracized by her own people, treated as something less than an image bearer. Jesus says she's actually an heir of the promises given to Abraham. Some of the most incredible promises ever ever made. If you look in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Paul summarizes this way. If you're a child of Abraham, you you become an heir of the world. She She was a daughter of Abraham. And if an ox can be refreshed on the Sabbath, Should I not work for her good that she might be healed on the Sabbath? In fact, Jesus goes even further than that. And not only saying it's okay for him to do this, because this is an act of mercy. This is not prohibited by the Sabbath law. He reminds us that this is the best day 
This is the most appropriate day for someone to come into the synagogue and be healed. This woman, we said, was a, a bound by Satan, is what Jesus says there earlier. She had been afflicted by the powers of evil. And now in Christ, she has been set free. And so Jesus is saying, there's no more appropriate day in the week than the Sabbath for me to deliver somebody. Remember Deuteronomy 5.15 says, you shall remember, this is in the context of these Sabbath rules, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. One of, the, one of the purposes of the Sabbath was to look back and to remember that God had delivered Israel with His mighty arm, with His power. So that day that, that Jesus came into the synagogue, He demonstrates the, the, this power to deliver someone who has been bound. He demonstrates His kingly authority by overthrowing Satan's grip on this particular woman, and it happens to fall on the Sabbath so that Jesus might make this point, that he has delivered her, just like you're supposed to look back and remember God's deliverance of you. She is delivered on the day of remembering God's deliverance. Shouldn't he do this on the Sabbath, Jesus is arguing? But those whom Jesus has called hypocrites... They, they had missed the point of the Sabbath. So they missed the glorious nature of Jesus' presence and Jesus' work in delivering people from the rule of evil. So as we consider then Jesus uh, delivering this, this woman on the Sabbath, we should remember that, that the Sabbath day, and ultimately we know as the Scriptures develop, it's pointing us forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and His work. Consider Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This was pointing forward, not only to this day when Jesus would, would deliver a particular woman, but forward to His work where He would offer rest to His people. Paul is urging the Colossians there not to return to the, to the Mosaic law because these things are pointing forward to the one who has fulfilled the law, Jesus Christ. They are a shadow. Jesus Christ is the substance. He is the destination that the sign of the Sabbath was pointing forward to. So the Sabbath was meant to point towards Christ, that He would come on a mission to offer eternal rest to all those who find themselves weary, weary of sin and weary of trying to earn God's acceptance through our own good works and our own good efforts. We might think about it this way. When God finished creating the world in six days, he rested, right? And we know, that, we know that God, we've been studying the attributes of God, we know that He doesn't exhaust His power. So why did God rest? He, he rested because the work was finished. He rested because the work was done. And so, so when you get to the Gospels, and Jesus is on the cross, He says, it is finished. He has accomplished the work. He has done it. 
And, and he, he, he very soon after that ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, having completed the work that he had come to do. And now Jesus commands all of us everywhere to repent, to turn to him, and, and to put away this, this, any notion of the idea that we can earn God's righteousness, that we can work hard enough to earn the love of God. We just can't do it. And Jesus invited all those in Matthew chapter 11 to come to me, all who are labi- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can find rest in Jesus, yes, in this life, but ultimately when you're looking at like Hebrews chapter 4, it's an eternal rest. There still awaits a rest for the people of God. We look forward to that day that we might be in God's presence forever. We will enjoy Him forever. Eternal rest. If, if you've turned from your sin and trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, so there's, there's no greater day than the Sabbath for me to deliver someone from the power of Satan. And verse 17 says the opponents, the, these adversaries of Jesus, they were put to shame. They were proven to be wrong. They wanted to make the rules. They wanted to have the authority. They wanted to feel good about themselves by condemning Jesus. Ultimately, this this feels like a wrestling match for authority. They want to reach up and grasp for something that God hasn't given them. Somebody said, this isn't about the rules, it's about who rules. So they've been proven wrong. They, They have no comeback, they must sit in silence as the crowd rejoices in the glorious things that Jesus has done. Now, we've seen this before. That doesn't mean the crowd all of a sudden, they all believed. We've seen the crowd rejoice in one hand and spurn Jesus in the next. But amazingly, in this moment, the crowd is more sensible than those who are given leadership in the synagogue. They're put to shame. The crowd rejoices. So I think someone who's reading the Gospel of Luke is confronted with this Question, do you sympathize with the ruler or do you sympathize with, with the crowd who stands in amazement? My prayer, my hope, obviously this morning, is that this passage would drive us to rejoice in the glory of God, seen in Jesus Christ, as He has come on, on a mission to rescue people from the penalty and the power of sin. And may this text humble us again and remind us but you know, we can wag our heads at the, the ruler here and we can, we can question what's wrong with the Pharisees. But, but in all reality, when we sin, when we sin, what are we saying? God, you have no right here. You have no authority here. And so may we be humble to remind, remind ourselves that, that the pull of the flesh, we still wrestle with some of these same prideful thoughts that we see demonstrated so clearly and somebody like this ruler. May we turn from that and and submit ourselves afresh and anew to the authority of God, ask Him to continue to sanctify us as we want to walk under submission to Christ and in His good will. 
So we, we, we've pointed out a bunch as we've walked through the gospel of Luke that, that these, this ruler of the synagogue, these religious leaders, the crowd, they had all the evidence that they needed. The authority, the character, the mission of Jesus, they were all clearly on display. They, they should have been able to see it. That's what we saw in our, our the, you know, Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse, and the beginning of chapter 13. But many of them missed it because the king didn't come as they expected. It was much more subtle than they anticipated. It was much more quiet than they anticipated. It was not on the grand scale that they imagined as they looked forward again to this universal reign of the Messiah. And so Jesus, on the heels of this healing narrative where he demonstrates his kingly authority and power, he turns then and gives two parables that are intended to illustrate the nature of the kingdom. And that's our second point this morning. The nature of the kingdom is on display in the teaching of Jesus. So the power of the kingdom is on display in the ministry of Jesus. The nature of the kingdom is on display in the teaching of Jesus. Look there in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. You know, initially we might think that these, these parables, and we'll read the, the second parable here in a second, but we might think that these parables are disconnected or, or unrelated to that which preceded it. But that word, therefore, it, it, it seems to be drawing these two narratives together. It hints that these two parables come on the heels of this healing story on purpose. The healing of a woman bound by Satan brings up issues of authority. It brings up issues of the kingdom. It brings up issues of power. So Jesus, if we remember back in chapter 11, which I think was the last place we saw a healing narrative played out, He tied together, remember for us, these acts of deliverance that He produced through His own authority and power and the kingdom of God. In Luke 11, Jesus said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm doing this by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is, is here. The king has come, and his work is evidence that, that the kingdom of God is in the midst of the people. So Jesus, then, he sets out to undermine some of these assumptions that when the Messiah comes, it's going to immediately be this universal reign. He's going to overthrow the Roman government and control over Israel. He sets out to illustrate, well, what will this kingdom be like? And that's what he does in, in verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare the kingdom? And the first illustration that Jesus gives us is a mustard seed. Now, you probably know that a, a mustard seed is, is tiny, it had become slang at this point. If you wanted to call something small, you would say it's a mustard seed. Remember Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Jesus is just saying, if you have that, that much faith, it's that small. Jesus says this, this tiny seed, it, it sprouts into a huge tree, large enough for birds to come and find shelter and rest in its 
branches. It begins small, minuscule. It ends big, big enough for birds to come. So there, there, there is this idea, and most of the time I've heard this preached or taught about, that the focus falls on the growth of the tree. And I, I think there is an aspect of this in the text that Jesus does say the tree grows. And so we see that, we do see in the book of Acts that they're proclaiming the kingdom of God and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going across the nations. So there is that sense in which, which this, this tree grows. But it seems to me that the emphasis falls more on there's a small beginning and a big end. The main point is, is that there's this organic connection between the beginning of the kingdom and the end result of the kingdom, the glorious future of this kingdom. Though Israel may have been unimpressed with this local mustard size view of the ministry of Jesus, there's a clear connection between what, is Je- what Jesus is doing in the Gospels and what the kingdom will be like in the future. The tiny seed leads to a mature plant. So consider even what happened just in this narrative. We see that Jesus demonstrates his kingly authority and his power to cast out the, the, the rule of Satan. But again, it's not that universal reign. It's one lady in one synagogue that he speaks and delivers. But we see that this pictures what the universal reign of Christ will be like where Satan is subdued. But the local initial ministry of Jesus is like like a mustard seed compared to what it will be one day when it is fully realized. But it's of the same nature. It's of the same organic makeup. If you see the seed, you can easily imagine what the tree will become. And I think Jesus makes a, a similar point in verses 20 and 21 using the picture of leaven. A woman takes some leaven, which would be like sourdough that, that, that serves something like yeast, and she puts it in three measures of flour. Now, people who are interested in these sorts of things say, say that this would be like 50 pounds of flour. Three measures. That's a lot of flour. And so this small lump of, of leaven is placed in this, all this flour, but what happens? Eventually, the leaven permeates the entire batch of flour. And this is the the inevitable result. There's no stopping the leaven from leavening the whole lump. There is no reversing this process once it's done. And so again, the kingdom of God, it it didn't show up the way they thought. It, It looks small now, but it will eventually permeate the entire world. Though it's hidden, she she hides it in the flower. Though it's hidden from many eyes now, it will eventually be obvious to all that Christ rules over all. What's interesting, both of these are are then surprising examples. Leaven is usually used as like a negative thing, right? A a picture of sin. And a mustard seed is hardly a, a flattering image of the power and coming of the kingdom of God. So I think in both these stories, we see two things. We see that there's some level of, this is an obscure beginning, not what people 
expected. Again, there's, there's enough evidence, but it didn't come. Jesus didn't come in his first coming in the sort of world-dominating fashion that everyone expected. Israel, by and large, was expecting the arrival of this kingdom. We see it even in the, the attitude of the disciples, right? When they're bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They're thinking this, this universal reign. Can I sit at your right hand? Can I help you like inaugurate this thing, Jesus? But the arrival and the beginnings of this kingdom will be different than expected. That's why Matthew, in his recollection of these parables and others, he, he speaks of the, the secret or the, the mystery of the kingdom. It's different. It's, it's something that's revealed now to us. We see it now. And we've seen, even as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, that the arrival of the kingdom is then consistent with the arrival of the king himself. It was less pompous than you or I would have planned it. Right? How would we have had Jesus come to this earth? Light shining. You know, it would have been pretty... We could put our minds together and come up with a pretty grand idea of how Jesus should come to this earth. But instead, Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of a teenager who... Very few people even knew. He was born in a little town called Bethlehem. His birth was announced to whom? Shepherds. They were sort of lowly in society. He was raised in the dismissed town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Jesus came out of Nazareth. He had 12 faithful men who were his followers. He was put to death by the Roman government at the request of his own people. After his resurrection, he, there's 120 people gathered in one room waiting for the sending of the Spirit that Jesus had promised, but that he had told them about before his ascension. That's probably not the way we would have written it. That's probably not the narrative we would have designed if we were sovereign over history the way the Lord is. But God doesn't work the same way that we work. He's wiser and grander and greater, and He orchestrates all of history for His own glory in ways that we can't even comprehend until we see it. Someone said it this way, Jesus is not allergic to working quietly. Jesus is not allergic to working quietly. You know, maybe you remember the last few testimonies we've had shared from this pulpit even. You know, when we baptized Sam and Levi, it wasn't like this road to Damascus thing. Well, what did the Lord use to draw a couple of young guys to faith in Christ? Faithful parents, a faithful church, brothers and sisters in the Lord who are encouraging siblings. It was all very quiet and nondescript and behind the scenes. But Jesus used it for His own glory. You know, many of you were here when, when Lisa read her testimony. She's sitting in a pew, and there was no light from heaven, unbeknownst to us and everyone else in the room, but only her and the Lord knew that He had drawn her, opened her eyes to see the glory of the gospel, and, and saved her. Many of you can recall stories of your salvation. Some of you may have some dramatic stories, but many of us, it was very quiet and under the radar. Certainly your growth in Christ hasn't been a lightning bolt from heaven where you woke up one day and thought, I guess I'm not going to sin anymore. 
Instead, you look back and you see that the Lord has indeed been working in you and and changing you and shaping you and molding you into the image of Christ. That's how God often works. That's how His kingdom in, in this world spreads, even as we await the full and final consummation of God's work. It's often quiet and nondescript, like a group of Czech prisoners who are forced to work in a munitions plant, saving people, delivering people without it being utterly obvious. But don't forget then, the the second thing we want to see, don't forget the meaning or or the end result of the parable. It will not always be this way. It will not always be quiet, nondescript work. The seed will not remain small. The lump of dough will not remain unleavened. So, So the second point is the end result is certain. What starts small will result in that which God intended from the beginning. You know, Jesus doesn't deny the vastness of the kingdom, the universal reign of Christ. He doesn't deny this. He just says it starts small. It starts small. But the end result is certain. The leaven will do its work. And the tree will be formed, and it will be large enough for these birds. And there's Old Testament imagery here of, of, of birds finding rest and shade and shelter in this tree. So as we think about this certainty, we should ask, do, do you look around and you find yourself discouraged? I wonder if the eyes of your heart have been drawn down from Christ and they're sort of on the course of this world and the things that are going on, it's easy to grow discouraged. I think in light of this text, we should say, we should take heart because the end result is sure. The end result is certain. Things may look desperate right now as as opponents of Christ have a loud and a seemingly outsized voice. As sin runs rampant, as people are taking advantage of others, violence and corruption capture the headlines. We may be tempted to grow discouraged. And not only that, as we look outward, but as we look inward and we see the the darkness that's hidden in our own hearts, that we too, we may not be running violent in the streets, but we too are guilty of of sort of James 4 type of sin of using people for our own gain. And when we don't get what we want, we fight and we bicker. We too wrestle with the desires of the flesh. And we grow discouraged. If you're in Christ, you, you ought to be discouraged, convicted of your sin when you transgress God's will. So outwardly and inwardly, it can be so bleak and it can be so discouraging. We find hope and help in God's Word this morning. Though Jesus sometimes surprises us in the way that He shows up and the way that He works, He will complete that which He began. The tree will be fully grown. The whole loaf of bread will be leavened. Jesus will one day fully and finally put down the rebellion. He will rule and reign in righteousness. In Isaiah 32, the fool will no longer longer be called honorable. He'll no longer be called wise. The scoundrel will no longer be called honorable. Jesus will rule in His glorious kingdom and it will permeate the entire world. Or as we've said, our 
the main idea at the top of your notes is this, and then we'll close. The kingdom didn't arrive as expected, but it will advance as determined by God. The kingdom didn't arrive as expected, but it will advance as determined by God. Let's pray together. Lord God, your wisdom is on display when you act in ways that we can't see how, it, how we would have done it that way. But Lord, we are so finite. We're so small. And so Lord, may you continue to work in us. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Fill us with hope, even as we look around at our broken and sin-cursed world. And know that you are at work in your church, at work in your people. And that you are directing history to its intended end. That the loaf will be fully leavened. That the tree will bear its branches. And Lord, we will be in the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.